Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 261. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Perry. You know, hello, Valerie. Was that, uh, there was a show in the 70s or the 80s, I think it was One Day at a Time or something like that. I wasn't alive. (laughs) <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> well, fortunately, you're alive today because on today's show, we're going to be answering a bunch of questions sent in from our patrons. Yay! Yeah, including those about how sustainable are solid products. What do we think of the Save Ralph video? Oh, boy. What are our thoughts on the Cost DNA ingredient websites? What do we think of Mother Earth products, right from Mother Earth? How do you find cosmetics that don't contain titanium dioxide? What can you do to offset problems with Retin-A and the drying? And finally, can you really wash your hair too much? But wow, first, this is a big show. I know, seven questions. We don't usually cover that many. That's, that's a lot of questions. And <laughs> we've got some beauty science news to chit-chat about. It's more of a rant, but <laughs> we will talk about that. Before we get to that, Valerie, how are you? I saw you today, and you did this excellent hair talk for the Midwest SEC. I did. I did. The topic was the science of blonding, hair color, and hair repair. It was a lot of fun. I didn't get to see you. It was a virtual event. Uh, but it was really fun, and I'm glad uh, people really enjoyed the talk. I did get to virtually chat you, and actually, I I actually liked your previous title of the talk before. What was it? It was the science of blonding and bonding. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I had to look at my audience and you know, make I, a judgment I, call. So I, yeah. I like the I like the uh, the rhyming structure of that. Yeah. Did you learn a lot? I oh I of course I did yes. Um, I learned that sun in actually works. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> to an extent. <laughs> right. How well it works is the, the part that's up for debate. I just recall when I was in high school, like every girl in the summer is like, oh, I got to put in sun in. <laughs> like, yeah. is that really yeah. working? <laughs> it, it never worked. It never worked in my hair. But then, of course, you know, when I was in high school, I thought that if I could get my, if I could sunburn my face, then that would prevent acne. And <laughs> That was dumb, too. That's so bad. Oh, my gosh. Oh, teenagers the 80s. Are, teenagers are just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> you have here in the show notes, Gua Sha. What, what is this all about? <laughs> gua Sha. I, I, don't, I don't think that's how you pronounce it. I think it's Gua oh. Sha. Maybe I, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> I have... I have no idea, but I'm going to learn this week. So last week after the episode where we we talked about eye creams and I'm looking for eye creams, one of our very kind listeners said, you know what? I have a, f- a bunch of complimentary eye creams. Uh, she's an esthetician. She has her own spa. She said, let me uh, box them up and send them to you. And I saw she does gua sha and I'm like, wow, um, I've always wanted to learn how to do it. I've, you know, watched some videos and I'm just like, ah, I don't know what I'm doing. And so that's what I'm going to do Wednesday. I'm going to learn how to do it. 
Is it like whittling or what? What is this? You're, you're whittling your face away. Yes. Uh, oh, right. Well, basically, it's a special shaped uh, stone, and it helps you, um, I think, do uh, drainage in the face, and okay. it improves um, skin. Um, I guess skin plumpness, um, the condition of skin, uh, so like promotes an ex- exfoliating kind of a thing. That's a... No, it's really uh, kind of like the internal part of your face. Uh, I really feel like it's for that. Um, and a lot of people oh, do okay. all the time. I'm excited because I, I always have really tense facial muscles and I'm hoping sure. that it alleviates some of that. That's actually my favorite part of uh, facials is the massage piece. Ah. Uh, the late, the Hungarian lady I go to uh, does really great face massage for like 30 minutes. Um, and I'm hoping I, I can learn something. So I'm super excited. Well, that is exciting. Um, so, yeah, we'll look forward to a report on that. Yay. What about you? What's going on? Well, I do want to report that you know I was fostering a couple of kitties. Yeah. But they found a forever home, so now I am kittyless. So they're for- formally gone. They are formally gone. Cinnamon and Toast, although his name was actually Euston, but I thought Toast went better, or Cinnamon went be- with better with Toast, so. I just yeah, you name. can't have like cinnamon in Houston. <laughs> I know, I know. That's what. Well, the name was well, the name was Toast in Houston. I'm like that oh, does oh, that mm-hmm. that doesn't no. actually work. But Toast and Cinnamon that works great. So and you know cats don't know their names anyway. You can what call about them whatever you want. Cats know their names. No, didn't. these cats didn't. <laughs> mm, mm. Oh, or they're really good at ignoring me. <laughs> Probably that. Yeah, my mom's cat uh, can communicate. Uh, she knows, like, can I touch you? Are you hungry? Um, and she has two different meows, and one's uh, yes, one's no. And actually, when she meows no, it actually sounds like no. She's like, meow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you're it's like, like a, okay. It's like having yeah. a parrot. Well, yep. I, I, will, I will report that on the last day, uh, the last night, and these cats didn't really know it, but the last night – one of the cats toast he was kind of he kind of liked me the other one really liked my wife is like he didn't have he didn't care much for me but uh, the last night toast um about four o'clock in the morning woke up and then he puked on my neck so <laughs> while oh. i was sleeping <laughs> but Aww. i guess that was his that was his goodbye or something i'm like wow he's like goodbye <laughs> yeah i hope he's i hope they're happy i hope so too they're they're they're, they're gonna have a fine home all right Enough chit-chat. Why don't we get on with some beauty science news? Wow, a lot of SPF drama this week. Dramsies! <laughs> there, was, there was a lot of SPF drama with uh, that new new brand Crave, or I guess not a really new brand, but the new the the brand newly in the news was Crave, and they're yeah. They discontinued their sunscreen product? They did, yeah. Uh, they sure did. And I feel like a lot of the Korean um, SPF products for different brands are under a lot of scrutiny. And you know what? I don't know if it's just. Uh, yeah, it does seem a little unjust. The Crave people on their website, or actually on Instagram, they wrote a whole big note, and it said, essentially, we're discontinuing because our SPF score of 50-plus wasn't actually 50-plus or, or something. 
Pretty much, yeah, that's what they said. And they said they did uh, their own third-party testing, which, P.S., they should have done to begin with. Maybe they did. I don't know. Uh, they can't release the information, but they weren't pleased with it, so they're discontinuing the product. Well, you know, that that was one thing that struck me as a little odd. Why couldn't they release the information? I'm like... <laughs> Uh, well, they they probably it's probably not good, <laughs> right? Yeah, I guess if it was, I guess if it's way lower than, than what they expected, then they might be up for some lawsuits if they were claiming that it was something that it wasn't. However, I, I think originally, you know, they must have had the test done to show, like the manufacturer that they were working with must have done the test and said, oh, that that really is the number, right? Yeah, so I think that's uh, what they were saying had happened. So their products, uh, you know, they've heard of all these other brands. Of course, it all started with the legendary Purito. And we talked about that. We talked about that a few episodes ago. If we were more professional podcasters, we would tell you exactly the episode. But <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> well, we've talked about it a couple times, to be yeah. fair. So, yeah. uh, But um, they actually didn't do the testing previously, to my knowledge. So... Uh, They said our products were manufactured in Korea. We worked with a reputable manufacturer that promised, I just realized I said manufacturer, like manufacturer. Sure, sure. That's how I say it, I guess. Gosh. Well, uh, you're from Ohio. Ohio. You have that accent, right? (laughs) Manufacturer. Um, Anyway, so they promised high ethical standards and assured them their formulas were tested and labeled correctly. Now, uh, a bit of advice, Uh, not that contract manufacturers are unethical, but it's always just a really good job to do your own testing. And in fact, um, in the United States, I've actually never worked with a manufacturer that has just said, oh, yeah, trust me, it's 10. Like they actually, even if you quote unquote private label it, you are mm-hmm. still required to conduct your own SPF testing at any manufacturer I've made an SPF product with. So um, it's interesting that they just like took someone's word for it. Yeah, especially if you're going to try to grow a, a brand, um, you are putting yourself at the uh, mercy of a company, and which doesn't seem like a good idea. Although I know a lot of brands do that anyway, right? They'll just take what a supplier, an ingredient supplier says about their ingredients, and they use that as data to support what they're saying. You're not supposed to do that. Ultimately... The, the the entity responsible for the validity of claims is the brand. Yeah, at the end of the day, you just can't put your faith in anyone. Um, you know, companies make mistakes, things happen. And at the end of the day, the onus is on the brand, the person selling the product under their own name to do the diligence and do the testing. Now, that's not to say we absolutely cannot trust Korean products. We absolutely can't trust any SPF product. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, you have to have good faith that the brands are doing the right thing. I don't know how, um, transparency can be better. Like maybe people actually publish their results and maybe redact the laboratory that they've used or whatever. I I don't know a good, um, system for doing it, but, um, at the end of the day, people should be, should be doing their testing and, um, it won't. I think we're seeing all these reports come up of brands not hitting the numbers, and um, it, it's just really sad because I think it gives all sunscreens a bad rap. Well, there is one thing I, I want to point out here. Okay, I uh, there was in in December there was a talk by the IFSCC about 
sunscreens and how accurate the testing is. And I was made aware of a report where they took the same sunscreen and they gave it to uh, six or seven different labs. And the sunscreen had a range of reported values. All, and now it's all the same formula, but just different labs. And it had a range of anywhere SPF 60 to an SPF of 5. Was this using the same methodology? Yes. Now, the difference was that they didn't necessarily use the same uh, UV source. So they might have had a different UV source. And so that that is essentially that's what the, the speaker said. You have to also know. Not only do you have to know the SPF value, but you also have to know the UV source and how much UV radiation was directed at the skin over a certain amount of time, because that's where the variability is. And usually when you conduct SPF testing, or really actually when you do any testing, uh, the testing laboratory uh, should provide you with their uh, SOP for conducting that test. So that information would be in there. So I think that just demonstrates, though, that when when a brand does the SPF test or they have SPF testing done and they get a certain number, if it gets to the number that they want, say they want to do an SPF 30, because that's pretty much how things go. The, the, your marketers will come to you. They'll say, hey, I want a product with SPF 30. You say, okay. And you're a lab guy. You formulate it. And you're like, oh, this should be about SPF 30. You send it off to the lab. You tell the lab, oh, we're looking for about 30 you know what, you're going to get about 30. Now, if you don't tell them what your score is you're looking for, you it, it's been shown that if you don't bias them, uh, then it's much more, uh, you get a much wider range of SPF scores, which is bad. I mean, the, 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 the thing that I'm learning here is that the way the SPF testing is done, even though there's a, there's, there is a standard, an ISO standard for this, um, it's there's some unknown bias in laboratories uh, uh, that affect what score you actually get. And it's not actually unique to the ISO method. I mean, around the world, so many different SPF testing methodologies exist, and none of them are perfect. They all have areas where uh, there's some, you know, room in them um, in terms of uh, repeatability. So. I don't know that we'll find an easy solution. I also don't know that many brands can continue uh, to afford to repeatedly test their SPF values over time. I know that's another issue as well. The the cost barrier right. uh, to bring to S- an SPF to market in the testing arena is pretty significant, and not even big brands would have a hard time um, affording doing numerous and numerous and numerous. Now, you know, a few that's fine, but yeah, it's tough. I. But I think also the other problem is when you're you're a brand, you send out, you say, oh, and then the data comes back and it says, oh, it's an SPF 30. You're like, okay, that's what we wanted. So we go with that data. Now, if you would have tested four different production batches and, you know, done it on a blinded basis and you've done it to different labs, you would not get that score each time. You would get a different score each time. So what score do you go with? Do you go with the average, you go with the lowest, you go with the highest. The way that you do claim substantiation in the cosmetic industry is you put your best foot forward. And so if you sent your test, your your sample out, uh, 
And one said, oh, that's SPF 60, but then someone else said that's SPF 30. You would go, oh, oh, well, we can get a 60, so we're going to go with that, right? Yeah. But, well, to be fair, to get that 60, to get that 30, those were averages with a standard deviation. So they do give you a little room there. Right. Um, but it's oh, it's so twisted. So what do you think is going to happen, Perry? I don't know. I think this kind of thing is... <laughs> no, I, I think Do you think people will be over it in a year? They'll be like, oh, you know. Like, remember when last summer everyone was like, oh, my God, hair dyes cause cancer, and now, like, people forgot about it? I No, I think people will. I mean, there have been reports over the years. Consumer Reports has done numerous reports that said, oh, the sunscreens that you're buying, only half of them actually get those values uh, in our testing. And it just... What I don't understand here really is the people are hung up on sunscreen testing. The reality is if you went and redid the testing, the claims testing of any claim that's made, oh, it makes your hair stronger. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, in that te- that one test that we did, it made the hair stronger. I didn't repeat that test 10 times to get the standard deviation and figure out what the exact number is. Um, we did it one time and we're, we're taking the best, <laughs> the best number that we got, or yeah. it's, it's a uh, 24 hour moisturizing, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. And the one test we did, it's going to show <laughs> that don't, don't try to repeat my testing. So all cosmetic claims, this is what you have to know as a consumer, all cosmetic claims are, they're probably exaggerations. They are not giving you the lowest numbers that they scored, because those wouldn't be impressive. They're going to give you the best numbers that they got. They're not lying, but it's certainly not science. Um, science would be trying to figure out what is the average, the, the most predictive number that you're going to get if you ran this test 100 times. Claims testing is what is the best number I can give you if I ran it one time? <laughs> and that's that's just how it is. It's, that's cosmetic claims. And the entire industry is built on these dubious claims. When you see stuff like anti-aging ingredients are going to give you these great effects, well, yeah, in that one test, they probably did. If you, Does it really work? I, probably not, on average. I don't know. Well, if there's one little consolation out of this whole thing, at the end of the day, it probably doesn't matter if you're not getting the advertised SPF value on the bottle because you're probably not applying it properly and adequately anyway. So that makes anyone feel better. Yeah. Use your sunscreen (laughs) and use more of it because that's, that's what you need. Yeah. Yeah. What else did you see? Well, you know, we have a Twitter account for beauty brains and we have a lot of followers, although we don't get a lot of interaction with people mostly because, um, you know, Neither of us really tweet from there very much. No, I mean, we no, we have our own Twitter accounts. <laughs> yeah, we do. We, exactly, exactly. But the Beauty Brains does have one, and somebody uh, tweeted at us. I thought it would be interesting to discuss, but uh, Kin NC said, I saw this comment on a skincare video and would love to hear your expert opinions. And the comment was this. Actually, here in the U.S., there are about 232 chemicals being used in personal care products that have never been tested. Also, there isn't really a good labeling law, so you can pretty much say anything on the bottle. (laughs) Further, the U.S. continues to use products with chemicals that most of the world has banned. Oh my gosh, we are so archaic. (laughs) We are. 
Uh, there's just so much wrong with this. But we'll start with that first claim. Valerie, are there only 232 chemicals used in personal care products in the U.S. that have never been tested? I don't know. There's probably more. I'm just kidding. Most of them have been tested. No. <laughs> No, I would I would absolutely agree with you. There's definitely more than 232 chemicals. For sure. Because if you think about it, the chemicals that make up every single herbal extract or plant extract, we don't even know what these chemicals are. We don't, no. Aloe vera extract has got to have, say, 100 chemicals in it. We haven't tested all of those chemicals. And, you know, any time you take a plant, you're going to get you know, dozens or even a hundred chemicals. They have not all been safety tested, but the main, and I don't know where they get this 232 chemicals number from. It seems pretty, it seems like a pretty good number, huh? I know. has like a little ring to it. It's a palindrome 232. (laughs) I do like that. But uh, if you look at the INCI dictionary right now, there's about 23,000 ingredients uh, that people can use, but pretty much the the chemicals that are frequently used in making products, they've all been tested, right? Yeah, I mean, we have, I mean, just in our inventory of things we actively use, over 2,000 materials, and all of them have testing data of some sorts behind them. Yeah, and this is the, the big deal that, that some people will make about Europe, like the EU has banned like 1600 chemicals. It's like, yeah, those aren't being used in cosmetics in the United States. We haven't banned them, but you know, we didn't ban uranium, but nobody uses that in cosmetics (laughs) either. The next claim, the next claim was that uh, there isn't really a good labeling law. So you can pretty much say whatever you want. Actually, I think we have a pretty good labeling law in the United States. It's called the Fair Packaging and Labeling Act. And there's just like a couple rules that it has, but I feel like it covers everything. So the first is you can't put anything on the label that's not true. Right. So you you can't lie. (laughs) Yeah. And you can't mislead the consumer. And then the other thing is whatever um, they have, uh, you know, guidelines on what you're required to put and wear on the label. I actually have a whole book dedicated to this. Yeah. I don't recommend buying it. It's very expensive. And unless you're making products, you don't need it. Uh, but they're they're very specific about what type of product you have, what has to go on it, how many square inches in it, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that really helps the person making the product tell the consumer exactly what is in the package, what exactly are they buying. So whatever you put on the container has to be true and it has to accurately describe the contents of the product. And that's it. And I feel like that pretty much uh, covers everything. And so therefore, you can't just pretty much say anything you want to on a bottle. No, you have to be able to substantiate any claim that you make. This final comment was uh, the U.S. continues to use products with chemicals that the world has banned. I I mean... There, there are a few, I guess, but the, the the reality is the most of the cosmetics that people buy are made by the big international companies, P and G, Unilever, L'Oreal, and those guys follow whatever the Europeans are going to do with their because what you do as a multinational company, 
you want to do the same formula everywhere around the world. And so you just look at where are the most strict regulations. Oh, EU? Well, let's just follow that because anything that works in the EU will work in the United States. So, yeah, there are chemicals you could use if you wanted to in the U.S., but companies pretty much don't. (laughs) I can't think of anything that we use. And yes, we're multinational, but let's pretend we weren't. I can't think of anything that I even ever find on the internet. And a supplier says, oh, shoot, you can only use that in the United States. It's banned everywhere else in the world. Like it's just not in in the interest of raw material suppliers to make those ingredients. Because guess what? The ingredient suppliers are multinational companies too. Meaning they sell all over the world. It's not in their interest to just restrict themselves to one very tiny geography. Now, one exception to that would be China, right? Certain raw materials have to be China compliant if right. the supplier is interested in selling those. So I think that's a very unique case. But for the most part, I don't even think I can get access to banned ingredients. And the the only other thing I would say is that if you look at sunscreens, there are a number of sunscreens that you can't use in the United States. Oh, okay, are, yeah, sunscreens. Yeah. They're, but they're perfectly perfectly legal to use in the EU. So in that way, the EU is actually less strict than the United States. <laughs> so Yes, exactly. Take that. <laughs> the bottom line is, Kin NC, uh, this comment that you saw on the skincare video is just full of crap. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's move on to some questions. first question comes to us from Valentina, a Patreon member. Hello, Beauty Brains. I'm a cosmetic chemist student from Columbia in love with your podcast. Thanks for everything. I would like to ask you about your thoughts on solid products. Are they a real sustainable option? As a consumer, what should we look for on products to make sure we are supporting sustainable brands? Solid shampoo bars and conditioners are all the rage these days, aren't they? They are, yeah. And Valentina specifically references Nubar and Bar None. And the ingredient list is, uh, you know, it's pretty standard for a shampoo bar. Sodium cocoylacethionate, sodium lauryl glucoside hydroxypropyl sulfonate, brassica alcohol, cocoa butter, coconut oil, capryl hydroxamic acid, caprylglycol, and glycerin. And yeah. this is a pretty standard shampoo bar formula featuring um, a very creamy, rich surfactant, sodium cocoylisethionate, also known as SCI, one of my favorite surfactants to use. And uh, and then they have also have these lauryl glucosides. And, you know, it's, it's pretty standard issue. Uh, I don't want to call it totally plant-based. I don't know where everything uh, comes from from here. Uh, but there's certainly um, some chemistry involved, right, Perry? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, uh, plants don't make surfactants, you know, that work very well in shampoos, right? You know, at least not these surfactants. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm looking at you, saponins. I I know people are like, oh, saponins, you know, plants make those, the soap, soap ward or whatever. That makes a terrible shampoo. Yeah. I mean, you definitely don't squeeze a plant and get out, uh, you know, sodium methyl cocoyl tarate, right? It has to go through some kind of reaction. These are synthetic detergents, you know, they, they're dressed up. Yeah, yeah. you get them from coconut oil or palm oil or, or something like that. You get them from starting natural materials, but 
I mean, they're not, they don't exist in nature, but no matter, no matter what the brand wants to say. Yeah. And whether or not it's more sustainable, um, to me, that's a really tough question because sustainability, I think is uh, very personal in definition. A lot of people have different, uh, expectations when the word sustainable is used. So, you know, for example, uh, if these were coconut based surfactants, and I personally think uh, coconut is a less way less efficient crop than let's say, uh, palm oil or rapeseed, then no, I wouldn't find this very uh, sustainable. Uh, But if I thought palm oil was unsustainable, because although it is one of the most efficient crops per hectare, you know, the acquirement of land and the burning of land to uh, unethically create some palm plantations, you know, wouldn't be sustainable. If I thought sustainability had to do with energy, uh, honestly, to heat all this uh, stuff up and then melt it into a bar requires a ton of energy. So if to me, sustainability meant energy, and I'm like, no, I want cold process, like then this wouldn't be sustainable. So for me, that's a really, really tough question um, to answer. It's it's very complicated uh, whether it is better than getting your ingredients from petroleum. Maybe on some level it is, but on on another level it's now we're taking – uh, farmland away from people growing food, which seems bad too. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. It just really depends what way you want to slice it. A- absolutely. And uh, I think the biggest problem with these uh, bar shampoos, you know, they just don't work as well as the liquid products. I mean, they they're just for don't, a very right? specific user. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, the great thing about liquid products is during the manufacturing process, which by the way, this bar soap has to go through a manufacturing process too. Um, but, you know, at least with when there's water involved, you can easily solubilize these ingredients and make the shower experience a little easier. Uh, when you have the yeah. bar soap, sometimes it's really hard uh, to solubilize these uh, just in your hand or on your hair. And I think they can tend to leave a residue, but that's my personal preference. Well, I look at it, I'm looking at how much hair you have, and I don't see how you could possibly use a bar shampoo. No, it's not very efficient at all, right. for sure. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, Valentina also had another question. What are your thoughts on the Save Ralph video, which we will link in the show? Yeah, boy, did you watch that video? That- it was it was uh, not easy to watch, for sure. Yeah, the video essentially is... Ralph's I a rabbit. Ralph's a rabbit. It's kind of a claymation version or sort of an animated version. Yep. Um, And Ralph has a job of being a animal test rabbit. Yep. And essentially, the video is about it's 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 tough to watch. And but granted, I think it's very well done. It's very persuasive. What one of the things I think it does that's kind of a little bit unfair is it. It, it makes it seem like companies really want to do animal testing. <laughs> like they don't care about the animals. They're just, oh, let's uh, let's just round up animals and do testing on them. And I just don't think that is really the case in the cosmetic industry. No, no. I mean, really, at the end of the day, with animal testing restrictions in Europe and animal testing restrictions happening in uh, various states in the United States, uh, just not much of it is going on anymore, at least for cosmetic purposes. Yeah, and 
you know, they this video tries to make it seem like it's very widespread. And maybe back in the 70s and early 80s, it, it was more widespread. But pretty much uh, what Europe Europe banned started to ban animal testings in 2008 or 2009 and I think they came down with the rule in like uh, I want to say 2004 or 2007 and the date is 2009 that you have to be in compliance yeah and I think 13 was by the time I was like okay all animal testing is done and yeah, that that pretty much is the case now, and that has kind of spread around the world. And like we were talking about multinationals, if you want to sell something in Europe and the United States, you're just gonna follow the rules in Europe. And so that's there's so much less animal testing done now. Companies don't want to do animal testing. There's no real benefit to them except no. except to prove that. It, it'll be safe for consumers because that's the only testing that some uh, governments will accept, right? Yeah, and I will say that in recent years, uh, there have been alternatives to animal testing for some of the tests that historically were done on animals. I would say uh, it's not like the industry was refusing to do that in the past, but I would say that now the technology and validation has come around where we can say, you know what, for some of these tests... We can use non-animal testing methods. However, from a toxicology perspective, there are just some aspects that cannot completely uh, be replaced with non-animal testing. It's just really tough. It uh, really stinks, but I hope a lot of it is out of the way. Most countries have started banning animal testing. And really what that means is that companies are just going to use ingredients that have already been tested on animals. And you can look up, I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of companies say, oh, we're cruelty free. And then you look up one of their ingredients, glycerol stearate, for example, it's been tested on animals. Yeah. Sometimes I get statements from raw material suppliers and they'll say, well, we didn't test on animals, but public knowledge, this raw material has been tested on animals in the past by others. And here's all the dates, all the animals they tested on all the studies, but we didn't do it. And to me, it's like, okay, that's a loophole. Yeah, the bottom line is, I, yeah, animal testing seems cruel, but it's not done, like, frivolously. Our next question comes to us from uh, Nastia. She says, hello, I hope you're both well. Uh, we Thank are you. well. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm especially well since I've got that vaccine. <laughs> Good. Uh, I had two beauty-related questions. What do you think of this website to analyze cosmetics and general ingredient knowledge? And the website is costdna.com. <sighs> it seems like you love it, huh, Valerie? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm a huge fan. Just kidding. I don't think I had to say just kidding. No, did you know of this website before this question? Yeah, I've heard of it before, and I'm not going to lie. I've used it a couple times um, okay. just to see what they've said or if I've needed like a little bit of information on an ingredient uh, because um, I don't think they actually like go out and compile information, but uh, I think it it is like automatic. I think they go out on the internet and they just scrape data from other sources. Yeah. In fact, if you look up like what does an ingredient do, they always like reference, they say, oh, Wikipedia says it does this. <laughs> Yeah. Well, okay. to be fair, sometimes Wikipedia has great information, but I, I know I, I know I agree. Wikipedia does have great information. Uh, yeah, but, I know yeah. what you mean, though. Um, yeah. So I have used it a couple times, but I don't take it as uh, 
like a rule of thumb. Right. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I don't put a lot of faith in it. I'm like, oh, cool. Sometimes I'm actually just looking up an inky name, uh, yeah. to be honest. Well, I mean, this website is designed, it's designed to theoretically to analyze ingredient lists and then provide knowledge to consumers. Mm. I mean, I, I looked at it, I found it pretty confusing and unhelpful. <laughs> well, if knowledge just means here's some information, we, we I, don't know if it's right or not. I guess right. you could say that's knowledge. I, right? That is knowledge. You know, it looks, uh, so like I said, it looks like they're scraping data and they have this rating system that just doesn't make any sense to me. For example, I looked up sodium lauryl sulfate. Which, you know, on a website like this, should not rate well at all. Right. Well, they give it a safety rating of one or two, which is the lowest wow. safety. So the best safety rating. But then they had these other two character uh, categories. One is irritant and one is acne. And they score high for irritancy and high for acne. So... How does an ingredient score high for those two things, but then it has the lowest safety rating? That makes no sense to me. Well, guess who else rates sodium lauryl sulfate a one to two? Uh, what? EWG? Yeah. Really? But then <laughs> it's uh, strong evidence that it's a human irritant, expected to be toxic or harmful, medium human health priority. I mean, it's like suspected to be an environmental toxin. <laughs> it's a one but, and two. I just think this... A... <laughs> the, the whole notion Thumbs is just up, crazy. buddy. <laughs> it is, it is. Well, I I will have to say, uh, so I looked at uh, Casa DNA. It just seems to me there are much better sources for to get this kind of information. Uh, well, I don't agree with everything they say. I think InkyDecoder.com uh, gives you a pretty good listing of things. Mm-hmm. And e- even I would say, and I don't plug these guys almost ever, even I would say <laughs> the Environmental Working Group Skin Deep Database is going to give you uh, more reliable information than Castiana is. But, you know. I, I can my... see how it pained you to say that. <laughs> it does um, pain me to say You that. know, I probably would disagree that um, SLS is a one to two based on, right. you know, I mean, just going by the EWG, I'm going to be honest. Sure. I'm, I'm shocked. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm shocked too. <laughs> yeah. Who but did, Who did they pay to get that, to get that number down? <laughs> sponsored by, I'm not going to name a raw material supplier. That's rude. You are, uh, you are not. I, I'm cutting it out anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, well, it just goes to show that you know, any of these websites that aggregate data, you know, it doesn't really do a complete picture of, you know, what does toxicology look like? Uh, you know, yeah. even EWG, it's like a great score. Well, it depends on the usage, right? How we're yes. using it, where you're using it, what are the user directions, what else is with it, etc. So I uh, personally don't trust any of these sites, but I trust my safety assessor. <laughs> and, indeed. And I trust the CIR uh, dash safety.org. So, but wow. you have to, you have to be willing to go through and read, uh, peer reviewed science papers written <laughs> by toxicologists, which I gotta say, they are not page turners. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh man. Well, what was the well, second question? Nastia did have a second question. She said, what do you think of the brand mother earth? And then gave a link to mm. that. Mm-mm-mm. Well, all right. I looked at the products and Honestly, they didn't seem to be anything particularly earth-shattering. Now, that's not to say the products are bad, 
But you know, and I know, I know a lot of you think that there is nothing that impresses me <laughs> except really good jugglers. Um, and you know, it's mostly because I've been in the business long enough where I've pretty much seen all of the products that come out. They're they're really in the cosmetic industry. There is very rarely anything new, <laughs> and you know, I've been in geez, almost 30 years, and I've seen these technologies, I've seen these stories before, and I look at this Mother Earth, and her mission is to create organic cosmetics with the health of your skin and hair in mind. Um, the owner believes that nature provides everything that we need, including beauty enhancement, so she decided that she wanted to explore what nature had to offer our skin and hair and then spread that knowledge. I think that's nice. It, it's it's lovely, but have you have you ever heard that story before? I've <laughs> yeah, I've heard it a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing new, and it's it's it seems always so quaint to me that these new entrepreneurs have come in and like, I'm going to take the beauty industry by storm, and then they're doing what everybody else does. I and I it's fine enough. I looked at the products. They don't have any special ingredients. They use shea butter, castor oil, coconut oil, almond oil. These are all pretty standard ingredients, and I bet the products are perfectly fine if you like that kind of natural feel to it. Do you know I noticed about the products when I visited the website? What's that? The labels are missing uh, the product name and function, so like moisturizing lotion, and they're missing yeah, yeah. their label weight claims. <laughs> Isn't that awful that I noticed that? Not that they're missing it, but, um, you know, because some people, you know, you just don't know. But generally, um, if you look at a big brand and look at kind of what they have on the front of every label, you could kind of get a feel for what's required on the label. But that's that's what I know. I thought the products, you know, the ingredient looks, I'm like, oh, that looks nice. Um, But just the labels were missing some pertinent information. Yeah. It looks nice. It looks a little amateurish. That's awesome. But if you like these products, you know. Go ahead, do it. They're they're all pretty much standard anhydrous products. They have kind of limited functionality, but you know you might use them and you might like them. So yeah, I, th- I think the you know there was a product I would try on there. I think, but anyway, oh. well, it's not about go. me. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's about our patrons and Lisa's up next. Lisa says hello. I enjoy your podcast and your knowledgeable commentary. I have an allerg- <laughs> allergy. <laughs> I have like an a allergy. allergy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have an allergy to titanium dioxide and it is very difficult to find any color cosmetics without it. It is particularly tricky because even if titanium dioxide isn't in the main ingredients list, it usually shows up in the plus minus category. Might you have any suggestions for finding cosmetics I can use? Well, um, yeah. So in the US, if you have a base and actually in other parts of the world as well, um, if you have a base product and you have many shades to offer, as long as the base formulation doesn't change, you can list uh, the colorants all at the end. You don't have to list them in order. And that's just one of those labeling laws uh, that exists for color cosmetics. It's convenient because you can make one label for your entire line. Exactly. Yeah. But um, nonetheless, the good news is if titanium dioxide is present, whether it's in the main ingredient list or it's listed at the end, or it's even listed as a CI number, which is the European nomenclature for iron oxides and pigments, uh, you can still find it. And that's what's so great about cosmetics. You're required to disclose the ingredients if you have an issue. 
So, um, how do you find uh, cosmetics that don't use titanium dioxide? And, um, you know, at first I was like, wow, that's going to be tough because at least in foundation products, when you're making, um, concealers, foundations, bronzers, uh, titanium dioxide is really important because it has a nice, uh, white tone to it and it's used to control the lightness or darkness of a foundation. So typically you have four pigment colorants. You have black, a golden yellow, a a kind of like a rusty colored red, and then you have white. And the blends of those four determine the tone. And typically the white determines uh, the lightness. Um, Right. I think obviously, right, the more white you have in something, the lighter it is. It's just simple uh, dilution. And actually using those four colors, you can actually make any human skin tone color. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So uh, titanium dioxide is pretty important. At first I was like, oh, wow, you know, it must be tough. But then I realized we have another pigment that's white and that's uh, zinc oxide. Now, I feel like there's a reason why people use titanium dioxide and it might have to do uh, with the shape. Typically titanium dioxide and zinc um, oxide come in different uh, two different primary shapes. They come in different. They feel different. Yeah, um, I think you know, it's they, a, the feel. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean zinc oxide is noticeable. Uh, titanium dioxide, I think, typically not as notable noticeable. But anyway, um, it turns out there are some brands that we found uh, just by using Google uh, that offer not only powdered products um, in the foundation concealer range, but they also offer. Uh, not actually not as many uh, liquid products as well. Um, I'm assuming that's probably because the zinc oxide's a little more challenging to work with in yeah, liquid. Yeah. I'm guessing, yeah. So um, they exist. I would, you know, we found a couple on the internet. I don't know how they work, um, but the good news is, if you're looking for like a lipstick, a blush, an eyeshadow, anything that is typically charged with color, you should have an easier time because there tends to be less. Uh, white-based pigments in those. Yeah, a- absolutely. And, uh, you know, just uh, put titanium dioxide-free cosmetics. Uh, there's a fair amount there. Oh, not that we've tried them. but uh. Yeah, and we actually were going to uh, plug a couple, like, oh, we found these, and then we didn't like the claims they made on their website. So we're like, yeah, we're not going to mention that. We want. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, they got into titanium dioxide being a carcinogen, and it, it's... It's not. It's too complicated to get into on this show, but it was, uh, we didn't like it. So we're not promoting them. We don't like to promote fear marketing. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Lisa, sorry, we're not going to mention them, but I'm confident if you just type in titanium dioxide free cosmetics, you'll find a couple. And uh, don't click on the first two links because those are the two we don't like. <laughs> Not because of the products, because of the marketing. <laughs> yeah. She, she, she did have one more question. Also, I like Retin-A for what it does for wrinkles, but it is very drying. Is there anything which can be done to replace the hydration to restore the dewiness? Dewiness. Perry, you know, I had a, what do you I had think? A, I had a friend in high school. His name was Chuck Dew Temple. We always called him Dewey. <laughs> That's a cool name. I like that. <laughs> what an interesting name, Dew Temple. Well, Chuck, if you're listening, we loved your nickname. Uh, you know, if okay, if you use an ingredient and it makes your skin dry, you know, use a moisturizer after, right? I don't think it's that simple, you know, especially oh, isn't with it? Okay. No, I mean, 
kind of, but I guess my first thought is, um, you know, when I've used, um, a long time ago before it just got to be too much for me, um, I've used retinoids in the past and I feel like if you're getting to the point where it's like too drying or you're like too crusty or too peely, I would, uh, talk to your doctor about dialing it back. And I guess I'm, yeah, I'm assuming this is a prescription, Uh, but I would look at the frequency in which you're applying it. And then I would also look at the other products that you're using, because if you're doing a ton to your skin and you're using a really great cleanser and you're doing other exfoliation and all this other stuff, or it's winter, or you're constantly running a heater in your house and it's extra dry, I, I would kind of look at your routine and say, hey, what else am I doing? Yeah, and cut back on some of that. Yeah, so I would try that first to see if that helps. And then if it's still like, hey, you know what, I'm even like barely using this and I'm just so dry, I would um, kind of look at the obvious products, like you know, make sure you're using a gentle cleanser adequate moisturizers, uh, glycerin based high, uh, toners. Um, I would try, you know, I like to plug hyaluronic acid. I know Perry's like, but you've got glycerin. Um, <laughs> I like hyaluronic acid too, although it can be irritating to some people. So make sure it's not sure, sure. Uh, irritating to you. But yeah, I would just uh, really work on the hydration routine. All right, Valerie, I got news for you. Yeah. We've got, I like to have a one audio question, and uh, I think your dog wants one audio question too. So <laughs> let's just play that and we'll wrap up the show. Here we go. Right. This one comes to us from Hannah. Hi, Valerie and Perry. This is Hannah from the UK. Following on from the question last week that you answered about hair being damaged by water, I wanted to ask you about hair washing every day. My hair's very fine. It gets greasy very easily. I've always had to wash it every day and I've tried extending washes um, and using dry shampoo in between. It's never really worked and I don't really like the feeling of having greasy, dirty hair. So I've come to the conclusion that I do need to wash my hair every day, but am I damaging it, overly damaging it, should I say? And would you advise against doing this? What does somebody do if they have fine, greasy hair and they do need to wash it every day? My hair is also reasonably long. Um, I am trying to keep it in good condition. So what are your opinions on that? Thank you. Love the show. And I love her accent. (laughs) Do you know, uh, a quick aside, uh, while Kukla is being very annoying, and I'm sorry about that, a quick aside, we get tuition, um, let's call it tuition reimbursement money um, yeah. at our company every year. And our company recognizes that not everyone is in a degree seeking program or, you know, my team, we've already done more than enough school and we're not interested in going back. So our company lets us use it on whatever we want to. Okay. I've done espresso school. Uh, some of my employees have done uh, wine classes, language lessons, um, cooking lessons, dancing lessons, photography. All You know, we really just make sure we use it to, to keep learning. It's so cool. Sure. And I actually uh, have thought about taking British voice lessons this year. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'm not very good. Uh, you know, I'm not good at all. I don't even know why I did that. And uh, Mr. Cosmetic Chemist is like, why do you need a British accent? I'm like, you never know when you need a British accent. Oh. I think I think the show needs you to have a British accent. 
<laughs> well, anyway, um, it's on my list to do before the year's out. So, well, let's answer Hannah's question. Uh, we did actually cover this question back in episode two forty-five, and during that episode, you can actually hear the story of how I had the most shampooed head in America in two thousand five. The full <laughs> real story, because Perry has. <laughs> covered the story many times but we never got the full story and i was grateful was to hear it on story. episode 245 yeah i kind of think you were kind of mocking me that whole time <laughs> well sure. you know i was i was like does perry have amnesia or dementia or alzheimer's right. or something but actually you, you know valerie you know valerie uh, uh on sunday just the other day i just turned nineteen thousand days old Wow. I should calculate yeah, I, how many days old I am. Is there an app for that or something? I, I'll do it for you. Or do you, you keep count? Um, you have like 19,000 check marks and you had to be like 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40. I actually have a, I actually have a spreadsheet where I keep track of how many days I've been living. <laughs> Today is 19,002. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But what do you think about washing your hair every day? Is it bad? You know what? I think it depends on your hair type. If you feel you're oily, uh, but your hair is in good health and you've been washing it every day, I say keep going. Um, you know, if you start to have, uh, you know, dermatitis, other scalp issues, uh, severe breakage, severe dryness, uh, poor, just poor overall hair health, I would say, I'd change your routine a little. Yeah. But if you feel like, you know what? My hair looks good, feels good. I look good. I feel good. Keep going. Um, you know, it really is all individual. I personally can't um, shower that often. Or, I mean, I shower, but like neck down, you know, um, I don't sure, wash sure. my hair that often, but I have an employee, fine hair, very oily. Um, in fact, we did uh, a scalp study and she actually was our oily scalp person. And oh. even after a day or two, I was like, what? Uh, but <laughs> she washes her hair every day and it works for her and her hair still looks yeah. really good. So I would say if it works for you, keep doing it. I think when you see general advice about washing your hair, you can just ignore it because you've got to do what works for you. You know, back in 2005, I washed my hair 18 <laughs> times in one day. <laughs> in one day, ouch. Yeah. All yeah. I have to say it's... is ouch. Yeah. And I still have most of my hair. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's actually pretty good. You do. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. <laughs> All right, Valerie, it looks like we've come to the end of the show, and we talked the hell out of this show, didn't we? Yeah, great episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Valerie, the Beauty Brains are on Patreon, and we thank all of our patrons. Oh, yeah. In fact, the entire episode today was from Patreon. Yay. (laughs) Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks for keeping it. If you want to follow us on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains, and you can subscribe and help keep the show ad-free. And if you get a chance, please go over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That will help other people find the show, think good things about it, and give us a full docket of beauty questions to answer. If you have a question, just record it on your smartphone and email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com, and you can hear your voice on the Beauty Brains show. Also, don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at TheBeautyBrains2018. On Twitter, we're at TheBeautyBrains. And we have a Facebook page. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone.
kittens. 